Hey, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Today is an amazing chat with Alicia and Meredith from the Intentional Birth Company. They are discussing what a physiology first approach to birth is and also an interesting topic on the obstetrical dilemma. So stay tuned and enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with Physiolora. Hey, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physiolora podcast. I am so excited for this chat today. I first was introduced to Alicia and Meredith from Intentional Birth, who you can find at intentional.birth, when they ran a summit that really tickled my fancy. So I'd never heard of these women before, but they captured me straight away and everything they were talking about really resonated and I just knew I needed to get them on the podcast. So these lovely international guests were so kind to join me. And what I love about them is the way they approach birth and the way they speak to birth. So they are doulas and they work together and they run this amazing in-person but also online business. And they have this approach that they've coined called physiology first approach. And I think it's just a really beautiful summary of everything I know about birth, but in language that might resonate deeper for many women. So it's about what exactly is physiological birth. That's what we're going to discuss today. How can we protect physiological birth, particularly when interventions may be necessary? Why many care providers don't actually understand physiological birth. And that's when we then transition into talking about this really interesting discussion around the obstetric dilemma. So these women hosted this amazing online summit called the Obstetrical Dilemma. And it was to discuss the dilemma and the bind that these women and men that where they want to support physiological birth and they want to support woman-centered undisturbed birth, but their training doesn't allow for that. So it's this really interesting chat about the themes and the messages that were coming out of this summit. And I think it's something you'd really love to learn about. And I do go into that discussion further with an obstetrician, Natalie Elfingstone, who will be coming on the podcast shortly as well. So definitely stay tuned for that. So I really hope you love this chat. If you want to connect with Alicia and Meredith, you can find them at intentional.birth. And otherwise, come on over to at PhysioLaura and let me know what you got out of this episode, what take-home points you really loved. I always love hearing your feedback. So I would love to hear from you. But without further ado, enjoy this wonderful episode with these wonderful doulas from Intentional Birth Company. Hello, ladies, and welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you both here. I, Like I was just saying to you in the pre-chat, I stumbled across your work through a summit, an online summit that you ran called The Obstetrical Dilemma. I found it so interesting and I've been like an avid reader of your emails ever since and I just love the angle that you both take on birth and this magical rite of passage and I was just like hot on the press to get you on the podcast because I was like, these ladies speak so well to this topic. Welcome, Meredith and Alicia. Thank you, Laura. So good to be here. I thought we could get started for anyone who doesn't know you, just by maybe introducing yourself, like where you are in the world and what got you into this birth space before we dive into the nitty gritty. I was, I had a whole different life before this one. I was a Hebrew professor and violinist and then I had a baby while I was teaching and I just found that I couldn't stop reading the birth books after I had my baby and um, I had a really beautiful a well-supported birth, and I wanted to pay that forward and help other women experience that 
I also had a really hard recovery. And so that was another part of my motivation. I wanted to help people not have prevent some of the dysfunctions and instabilities that can come with pregnancy and birth. And and so that became a part of my mission as well. That was the rest of history. I never went back to academia. <laughs> I always thought I thought I would when I jumped into birth work, but this has been the true calling of my life. I love that. <laughs> and what about you, Alicia? I attended the birth of my friend in 2008 before I had my second child. I'd already had one home birth and I went with her and watching her baby emerge was pure magic. And I knew that I just had to do it again. And it felt like a calling. I just had never considered it before that moment. And then so I pursued my doula training and had two more kids in the meantime and finally got started around 2013. And it just felt like I was in the exact right place. That's so beautiful. And I feel like once you're in that birth space, it's hard to exit, isn't it? There's just something, maybe it's the oxytocin, but there's something pulling you back. It's hard to leave that world. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. And what about you guys coming together? When did you start working together? We formed each other, moved to the Bay Area. And she reached out to me. She found me on a face on Facebook through a Facebook group of doulas. And we went to lunch together. And I was just impressed with what a well-spoken, thoughtful doula she was. And I liked her immediately. But we had a long way to go until we were working together. That took many years. Alicia was like already a big shot doula. And I was still a baby <laughs> juvenile doula. <laughs> I actually asked her to back me up and she refused <laughs> because I didn't charge enough. But um, our friendship slowly grew from there and until, honestly, we just became best friends and have been very deeply embedded in each other's lives for the last few years. I love that. And obviously it's magic you both coming together because, like I said, it's been a while since I've been really hooked into someone's ethos and I have read a lot about birth, but there's something about the way you both talk about it and write about it that's really sucked me in recently. I want to start with one of the things that you've coined recently and a really big catchphrase of your business, which is this physiology first approach. So I'd love to know how you came to this, where it came from, and why you think this is the most scientific and the best approach to birth and how it can apply to a whole range of different births. Well, I need to give credit where credit's due, and that's to Meredith. Meredith is the wordsmith of our duo. And so she comes up with every great name, every phrase. So that was Meredith, just putting our values into kind of a short and sweet little package. And I don't know, I don't know if physiology first has been a thing that anyone else has used. It certainly makes enough sense to me that I feel like it should have been, which it's not by now. But we did outline like nine basic tenets of what a physiology first birth would look like. And the reason we came up with it is, and I say we because Alicia is 100% a part of this thought process and model, is that there can, being in the birth world and reading a lot online or in books, sometimes you come across dogma, right? And it feels even the term natural birth can mean so many different things to different people. To one person, it means a vaginal birth. To another person, it means no meds at all or a free birth. You know, just And so some of the terms of been difficult to define. And it's easy when you say, I want a natural birth or I want a medicated birth to feel like you have to pick and choose what you want and decide in advance. And to be very clear, Alicia and I 
are really big fans of supporting physiological births, and we're going to explain why, and for planning for that, and, and for advocating for that. But we are not about dogma, because we don't think that serves anyone well, and it can create a clouded view of the systems in which women are birthing, and make it hard to receive help or to refuse help, depending on the dogma that you're coming from. I love that. And I do think the the term physiological birth, I do feel like it's making a little bit of a resurgence because it is confusing what quote unquote natural birth means. And I know a lot of people tell me what I see mostly when people are referring to as natural birth is vaginal birth. And that could be vaginal birth with a whole range of interventions and not so natural steps, but that is what I'd see a lot of women referring to as natural birth. So I, I think if you are wanting, say, a intervention-free or minimal intervention physiological birth, saying I want a natural birth probably doesn't really encompass exactly what you mean. So I think it's like being more discerning with your language is really important because I think physiological birth, it's hard to misconstrue what that means. And I know for those women who don't understand what it means, I'm sure you guys are about to explain it when you go through your nine tenants. But I think it's really important to change the language because I certainly see what what people are calling a natural birth is probably not really where they think the language sits. Absolutely. It's great to make the distinction because physiology and vaginal birth can be two completely different things. But we, after seeing hundreds of births, we feel so trusting of women's bodies and we feel so trusting of the birth process. And we can see very clearly that it was designed for success. But as Meredith, and I should say, and as Meredith says, we're, we believe that there is a time and a place for every intervention. And so it's sometimes physiology does need a helping hand. But ultimately, we see that most of the time it works perfectly and beautifully on its own. Absolutely. And I think... That right there, like I feel like that needs its own little soundbite because that's a really hard place for a lot of women to get to because the culture we're growing up in doesn't often allow us to A, trust our bodies, trust ourselves, let alone then trust the birth process that we've never seen or witnessed or understood. And I think that's a huge piece. That's a big message of mine as well is about being able to trust yourself and trust your birthing wisdom and trust that birth is physiological and that birth is designed for success. But I think that's a really hard one to swallow for a lot of women first walking into birth. So I wonder if, where do you start with women when they are walking in going, but what about this and what about that? And I'm scared about this. And I wonder where you start with helping those women just take a little breadcrumb at a time towards trusting themselves and trusting birth as a process. I think one easy place to start is just by explaining what a physiologic process is. We've grown up thinking that birth is a medical procedure that needs to be done by, it's performed by a doctor, right? Somebody has to deliver the baby. And to explain that a physiologic process is actually one like pooping or swallowing or breathing. It's an involuntary process that our body knows how to do. It's programmed to be able to do it. And when we can reframe that birth is a physiologic process and not a disease or something pathological that needs the care of a physician most of the time, that can help to reframe the idea of where and with whom this birth needs to take place. Mm. Yeah, I, I think love also that. we get to clients that we get to show them, okay, here is your 
the cultural norm, and this is what you've grown up learning about birth. But guess what? That is actually not what birth is. So you get to show them what birth is. And I think the exposure to physiologic birth is so important. So they're watching it, they're listening to it, and they're reading about it. And the more that you're exposed to what it really is, the more those kind of cultural, the cultural brainwashing that we've all experienced about birth can fall away. And that's what good information does. It's so powerful. Once you start learning, there's fear until you have good information. And with good information, you can work through almost any fear. 100%. I think that's so important. I remember that reminds me of, I'm a long gestator. And so I had a lot of stories and hangups and fears around going quote unquote overdue. And so I remember I flooded my brain with stories of women having these beautiful births post 42 weeks. And like it, I made it almost seem normal in my head that, oh yeah, like women give birth at 43 weeks. That's just normal. And it so helped my fears around this being like this minority, like I'm the only one who's gestated this far and all the fears that came up around that and just flooding my brain and my my myself with all this information about, oh no, other women have done it. There's stories. I saw videos. I listened to podcasts. It really made a huge difference. So I love that you said that because that truly did help me with that specific facet of my own pregnancy and birth, just by seeing something else and building up evidence that, oh, that can be okay. So, yeah. I really love that you said that's really important. And I imagine that are you encouraging women to watch videos or listen to stories? Yep. Yeah. We carefully curate those videos <laughs> for them. Uh -huh. We have a lot of favorites that yeah. show like a range of normal physiologic births. Yeah. And we just need to get that into Hollywood now. We just need to yeah. get that into the movies. <laughs> Women even just birthing on their knees. Maybe that's a start rather than on their backs, eh? Oh. Hey? <laughs> so oh I... Laura, we can't even watch a movie. Like I cannot watch a silly birth scene in a movie. I just, it pains me so much. Yeah. And yeah. my kids have gotten to the point where they can say, mom, that's not real. Uh -huh. And they know what a real birth looks like versus a Hollywood birth. Oh, I love that so much. I think that's really important. Something actually came out recently for my kids in a kid's show. I can't even remember the context. Maybe they're pretending to give birth or obviously a kid's show. I don't think would actually show giving birth, but it was classic on your back, knees up to your ears. And I, I came in like hot. I was like, no, <laughs> this is not how it happens. But what I appreciate is that I have a video on my iPhone of my baby being delivered and my kids love watching it. It's just like their favorite. Can we watch the video of Luca being born again? So I feel very confident that I've at least given them a little piece of this is what physiological birth could look like as opposed <laughs> to what they just see. <laughs> what a gift. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. really that simple. It's just all it is, we have all these neural pathways wired to tell us, you know, what birth is scary and noisy and moms are angry and panicked. And we get to rewire those neural pathways into a whole new set of beliefs that birth is, yes, it's hard, but it's also wonderful and rewarding and your body can do it. Yeah. Oh, I love that message. Can you be my doula at my next birth? <laughs> <laughs> I was saying to Alicia before we jumped on this call, I was like, your voice is so calming. I love it. So can you walk me through these nine 
these nine key messages about the physiology first approach, because I think that's going to give women a really good understanding of what exactly this means. And it gives them really good groundwork to then be able to walk into whatever their birth looks like and whatever environment they're birthing in, whatever their birth team looks like, if this is important to them to be able to have this at the forefront of every decision they make and every information they're having to process can go through this filter of physiology first approach. Yeah, I'll jump in with the first one, which is that physiology first, it recognizes that the more complex a system is, the more opportunity there is for error. So it's, we introduce as little intervention as necessary to the birth process. So I think this is one that people can understand that the more complex a machine is, the more things could potentially break or go wrong. And the same thing with any process. And there's actually been a lot of research on this in the world of risk theory that sometimes when we introduce even a safety mechanism, it makes the whole system more complex and makes an error that much more likely and that much less predictable. So that might be a safety mechanism introduced to a car or to a mountain climbing a set of equipment for mountain climbing. And the same can be true for birth. Sometimes an intervention is necessary and helpful. But if it's not necessary, then it might be actually unhelpful because it's making more complex a system that is designed to work. The next tenet is that we understand that there is a wide range of normal birth. And so we want to craft an environment and a relationship with your team that support physiology and understand that there's a wide range of normal. And this is a big one. I think, Alicia, you could probably speak to this about how a lot of, it's very surprising to women, but a lot of care providers, birth care providers, don't actually know the whole range of normal because they never see it. Do you have an example of that? We've just never sat from a, at a birth from start to finish. I remember being at a hospital and discussing with a midwife at the hospital. So my client came in and what this midwife didn't know is that this client had already been pushing for a couple of hours at home before she decided she wanted to go into the hospital. Now, as a doula, I'm totally cool with that. Whatever mom wants, mom gets. If she really wants to be there for the birth, then I'll help her get there in a timely manner. But in this instance, mom wanted to stay home and push for a while, and it seemed fine. So we went in. Mom's pushing. She doesn't want a vaginal exam. She has a long list of things that she does and doesn't want. But the one that was really irking this hospital midwife was the no vaginal exam. Because she, this is exactly what she said to me. How do I know that it's really pushing and that the baby's really ready to come? And so I remember mom refused. Later, I went out in the hall to chat with a midwife and just talk to her about what I had seen at home. I did not mention that she had already been pushing for two hours, but I did mention all the things that I had seen. So I went down my list. So first I said, okay, first thing is a few hours ago, we saw that end of birth show that you see, you know, the royal red, cloudy blood, like a few tablespoons of it. And she was looked at me very puzzled and I didn't, she didn't know what I was talking about. So I, okay, let's move on to the next thing. I told her about mom was, I could see her rectum splaying and she knew that. And, but I mentioned a few other signs that I had seen in mom and she just didn't, it didn't register. And I think for her, the empirical data was everything. She needed to check, to believe that this was really happening. On the other hand, I've never done a vaginal exam in my life. So I can't, 
I get to rely on my senses. And not only my sight and my the sound, the smell, but also my intuition to know that, yeah, mom is really, truly having a baby and this baby will come soon. So it was just, it was an interesting opportunity for me to see where they're coming from. And now this midwife likely, she had, she told me that in 10 years, she had never not done a vaginal exam, maybe a handful of times. So hundreds, maybe thousands of women who she had always verified with a va- that they were pushing with a vaginal exam, mm-hmm. which boggles the mind. And it also means she doesn't really know what physiology looks like because she hasn't sat with physiology time and time. Mm. That's what doulas get to do. They get to see the process unfold and over and over again to the point where it becomes merited. If I heard a woman in the middle of the night making sounds like she was pushing, I would wake up and know where she was in her labor. And I know you would too. It's just, it becomes almost this second nature. But they don't have that opportunity in the hospital to see. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really great example of how like each profession comes at the same picture, but with their own set of tools. And if their set of tools is, you know, like you said, a vaginal exam, and that's all they've ever known as a way to trust birth and trust that, oh, what I'm seeing, I need to confirm that that is true via a vaginal exam, which we know is not... That really is just one part of the puzzle, like how far dilated you are. I think think there's more of an understanding now that how far dilated you are doesn't really mean much about where you're at in your birth journey or if you're almost finished or if you're just starting. And we know that it's not linear anymore. But if that is your only tool to be able to confirm it, you can see how your ability to see birth in other senses, like you said, the sight, the smell, the sound is really hindered. And I guess that's where we have to, as women, be able to appreciate, well, of all these tools that my care providers can use to help support me and assess my birth situation, what ones do I want and what ones do I not want? And for a lot of women, they will not want a vaginal examination because that can be very intrusive and really disturb the flow of birth. And if that's the case, then yeah, it makes it a little bit tricky, I guess, for some care providers who don't have other tools to be able to assess that birth situation. Oh, we recently interviewed a bunch of obstetricians who who have one one part or another of their journey of becoming more holistic and physiology friendly. And all of them said that they wish they had learned about physiology in medical school. That's not something they learned in their residency as they were practicing, as they were learning. And that might blow the minds of a lot of people preparing to give birth, that it's not something they really are educated in most of the time. They haven't sat through a birth from beginning to end. They've never seen a home birth. Most of them have never seen an undisturbed birth at all. And so they don't know how physiology unfolds. And then the, and then we also have this issue of we, we cut off the outliers. So there are fewer and fewer examples of this range of normal because we're going to induce someone before they reach that 42-week mark that you mentioned. How many women would be going to 43, 44, 45 weeks mm-hmm. of pregnancy if we were not just routinely inducing at 41 weeks or 39 in some cases? And so what women need to do if they want a physiologic birth is educate themselves as much as possible on the wide range of normal. Talk to people who actually are specialists in physiology. Those are going to be midwives. Those are going to be doulas. um, Those are going to be women who've given birth before. Like you did, Laura, you looked for those stories to find out, hey, what is the range of normal here? Is it normal and possible? 
to go beyond 42 weeks. Yeah, it can be challenging to learn that range of normal because that knowledge and wisdom to some degree is getting lost. But we're reclaiming it. I really, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're so right in that the range of quote unquote normal is getting narrower and narrower, isn't it? So many of those outliers are being cut off. So it seems wild to a lot of women to go to say 42 weeks. Whereas I imagine before we started inducing people and thinking that your due date was you starting to be overdue, that 42 weeks was no big deal. Whereas now it is becoming crazy. I will say I had a VBAC too, and that was a bit crazy. And I think because of all these guidelines and rules coming into place, it does mean that quote unquote, yeah, like normal ranges are getting tighter and are getting narrower. And I guess people seeing that, yeah, it's going to really influence because you don't know the full scope of normal. So that's really interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about that exactly like that, but that's really it's actually scary for me, to be honest, because it's, wow, I know we're all doing this amazing work to try and combat that, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of people going through a system that is only working within these narrow ranges, I guess. So that's really fascinating to me. Now, what was the next tenant in your physiology first approach? The next one is physiology first centers the hormonal processes of mother and baby. It seeks to optimize these through mindset, environment, and loving human support. So we honor the fact that physiology is controlled by hormones and that hormones work together as a beautiful symphony. You need all of them and you need them at the proper times. They're synergistic. And so we can encourage that optimal flow of hormones by helping mom get prepared, preparing her mind, ensuring that her environment is everything that physiology needs. For a birthing mom, that would mean dark, quiet. It would mean warmth and a sense of security and safety. And when those elements are present, then that hormonal flow can be optimal. And not only that, the loving support comes into play as well. You can have the optimal environment, but if you don't have the support and you want that support, then there is, there's a missing piece. Love that. And I'm going to quote both of you because I, I took this out of your email. If it's not sleepy or sexy, then it's not birthy. <laughs> that's it. That's right. So that's just reminding women that if the environment is not something you could sleep in or have sex in, then it's probably not where you're going to birth in. So yeah, the dim lighting, like the low stimulation. I really like that quote. Yeah, and it's not that you can't birth in a, an environment that's not sleepy or sexy, but it's going to be harder. Those hormones are not going to be working with you the way that they were intended. And so whatever you can do to modify your hospital room to make it sleepy or sexy is going to really support that physiologic process. And I think one thing I want to emphasize with this talk of hormones is that they're the drivers of normal birth. And when... What a lot of women will ask, is it such a big deal if I get induced or if I get an epidural? I know people do that all the time and they're fine. And sometimes those are tools that we need to have a birth be, it's to be optimal for the mother or baby. But we, every time we introduce an intervention, especially a chemical intervention, we are, we are interfering with that hormonal process and we create what's, what Dr. Sarah Buckley calls hormonal gaps that then we have to try to fill sometimes with another intervention or with just real proactivity, right? So if we've had Pitocin in our labor, we know that there's a, a higher risk of having um, breastfeeding and bonding 
issues. So we need to be really proactive about trying to fill that hormonal gap with lots of skin to skin and proactive breastfeeding support. But just to say that you can't disturb the birth process without disrupting these hormones, and that can have kind of a chain reaction down the line. Um, the next, so the next tenet, tenet is physiology first means being patient with the body's natural process as long as the mother and baby are well and wish to continue without intervention. This is the number one thing I think that anyone should look for in a care provider is someone who's willing to be patient with the process, whether that's patient with the length of your pregnancy or patient with the length of any stage of your labor. Because there, there is such a wide range of normal. We could tell you stories all day long, Laura, <laughs> about the, length, the different lengths of pregnancy and birth that we've seen. But the fact is it's all normal as long as it's normal. And, and that patience is so important for the mom as well as her team. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think as a society, we really are quite impatient. Everything is fast these days and you don't have to wait for anything. And I think women, we know, like we get impatient towards our due date as well. We don't often foster that patience pre-pregnancy and it can be really challenging then when you're also with a system that doesn't really allow the space for patience because the system itself is about coming in and coming out. We don't have the beds and the funding and the capacity to be able to have women, say, in the hospital system, patiently waiting for their babies to be born. And so I think patience is a huge pillar in this whole conversation. And I ask my audience this a lot. I get a lot of questions about birth and Laura, what do you think about this? And it's been suggested that I have this and whatnot. And I always ask women, are you well? Are you healthy and well? That is always my first question. And it's it, like, is perplexing to women. It's like they haven't considered, oh, hang on. I know. And this is myself. This is my first pregnancy. I was induced. I was so well. And I guess. It was this whole, but what if sort of situation. But I really wish that I'd had someone say to me, are you and your baby doing right now? Is there any need to do this right now? Or can we wait? Can we wait and see how things go? Because I do think patience is key when it comes to this birthing process. Yes, and I think the birth process is designed for us to learn patience and acceptance and surrender. And we don't get to surrender quite as much when we speed through our birth. There's something about the length for a first-time mom that's instructive. And because the reality is in motherhood, we are going to be doing an awful lot of waiting and we are going to need a lot of patience to get through that wonderful phase of our life. I love that. I think my, my third birth was a three-day labor. So I think it was like the accumulation of all my impatience. <laughs> Every coming into one and being like, I'm going to test you now. Can you truly be patient? <laughs> Hard one, but so important. Yeah. And that birth doesn't want to be rushed. And so as doulas and midwives and physicians, we get to learn to sit on our hands. And as long as everyone's, why couldn't we carry on? Why can't we test the limits of what's possible? Meredith calls it building fences around physiologic birth. We've built up all these fences and we say we can only go this far, but no further. But the reality is, Meredith and I, every time we attend a birth, I think we learn something new about just how far birth can go and we tear down another one of those fences. I love that analogy. So the next tenet is that in physiology first births, 
the most physiological path is prioritized. It's that simple. That means that unless there's a good reason not to, we're going to wait for spontaneous labor. Unless there's a really good reason not to, and I can time for me to think of one, we're going to allow a woman to push with her instincts and in the position that's instinctive for her and feels good to her. Unless there's a really good reason not to, we're going to let the baby come out on its own, not pull on its head, not help it rotate its shoulders, because the physiology has that taken care of. The baby and the body know how to do that. Unless there's a really good reason not to, we're going to breastfeed and we're going to be skin to skin and support those early moments with mom and baby. And, and it's sad to say that this isn't what's happening, that in hospital and even in a lot of out-of-hospital settings, the physiological path is not being prioritized. And instead, we have routine intervention happening. That's so important. It's helpful for us to put on our common sense caps for a moment and think past modern birth, because sometimes we forget. We forget what came before the last 100 years when we started medicalizing birth and moving it into the hospital. We forget that prior to that, since the beginning of time, women had been doing this. Yes, maybe they had a midwife along with them, but she would have been mostly hands-off in the process. And it worked. And the biggest testament to that is the fact that this is a fully populated planet. And I think if we can just step back and take that view, that 30,000-foot view, we'll remember that birth works. It has always worked. It's only the last 100 years that we decided it didn't work and that we better manage it to make it safer. And I think that leads nicely into the next two tenets, which are that physiology first honors the genius of the body and it accepts intervention when doing so is likely to support the emotional or physical future of the mother and baby. And tied in with that is the next one, that when a medical intervention is needed or desired, we continue to preserve physiology wherever possible. I think a lot of people think, C-section, okay, everything's out the window. All my dreams for a natural birth. You can still preserve so much physiology in that scenario or in an induction scenario, or maybe if you got an epidural or had a vacuum assist, there's still so much we can do to protect physiology to optimize the process for mother and baby. For example, you can have an epidural and take varied labor positions. You can have a C-section and have delayed cord clamping. And guess what, everyone? You could even have an intact birth. We know of doctors who've done this where there's no cord clamping at all. Let the placenta come out before clamping the cord. You can have a C-section and still have skin to skin. You can still, in all of these scenarios, have a quiet, warm environment with loving touch and music and things that support the hormonal flow that nature has designed. Yeah, I love that because I do see that with women, that if the first intervention needs to happen for whatever reason, like you said, emotional or physical support that women go oh it's done my whole birth plan's out the window and there's nothing more I can do but I 100% agree with you is that there is so much more that you can still do to have a really supportive warm safe environment that feels really good for you and your baby and I know so many women we know birth trauma is on the rise and women's experience of birth is it is not great for the most part, but the women I see who have like these really positive and empowering C-sections and inductions and whatnot are often the women that go in and say, I really want the room to look like this. So I really want to be able to have hold my baby straight away or 
whatever it is, but whatever is really important to them that they've sat down and gone, this means a lot to me. So even if X, Y, and Z happens, can this still be a priority? They're the women that are having really positive experiences despite the intervention. So I really love how you talk about that. And even when you talk about, I think you've coined it like the intentional intervention. So just knowing enough about an intervention, not just passively going with the flow, but knowing what it's there for, the pros and the cons of it, and how you can still make that a beautiful experience is all part of the birth preparation as well. And I think that really helps empower women to know that there's such an element of surrender to birth as well, where you can't control how it goes, but you you can have prepared before to know that these are the things that's going to really support physiology despite intervention. So I love that approach. Exactly. And what you say, Laura, leads into the very last tenet. Taking a physiology-first approach means learning deeply about normal physiology and how to support it. It means learning how to navigate decisions that invite intervention with wisdom. The other one is, I think, just important to mention that physiology-first recognizes the wholeness of the human body, mind, and spirit and the interconnectedness of every human in the room with each other and with the birth process. Every, everyone in the room is impacting that horm- the way that your hormones are responding to the process of your body. We like to talk about the birth room as its own little ecological system, and you can't introduce a new player without impacting the other players. And so we have to think about how are these, how is this ecosystem working Is there something in it that's being really disruptive that we can remove to allow that everything to flow better? But everyone's connected. You can't be in the birth room without impacting the mother and her process. So what energy are we bringing to that space? Are we acknowledging her, not just her physical mechanical process, but her spiritual and emotional process as well? That's so important. You're right. It's not just a physical event. It's such a humongous rite of passage and it involves all of the different emotional, spiritual, physical, social. It's huge. There's a reason why I'm sure you get this with your birthing women that you work with, but you feel so connected often to that main care provider in the room. Like my doula, I was like, I feel so tethered to you right now. Like we are attached for life now. You have been there through this huge event with me. There's a connection there. That's so solid. So I think, yeah, that's really important. And I imagine you both probably have to be really self-aware and self-reflective when you are walking into a birth space about where am I at right now? What energy am I bringing into the room? And having to be really mindful of centering yourself to be able to support the birthing woman. So the work that you do is so important. And I, I love that there's women out there like yourselves who are able to support women through these physiolo- physiological birth. It's such a tongue twister, that one. So I really hope that whoever's listening, that you now have a really a solid understanding of what exactly is physiological birth and how it may differ to what we think is quote unquote natural birth or vaginal birth or whatnot. Physiological birth that we're talking about, something totally different. So I hope you have a really good understanding of that. And I really hope that Whatever your birth is that you're walking into, whatever your environment, whatever your birth team, but that if this is important to you, that you've got these principles at the front of your mind and so that you can help use this as a decision-making tool when things are presented to you to go, okay, and how does this sit with physiology? 
And are we trusting the process? And even if an intervention is suggested or required, how can I still make physiology at the forefront of our mind and the birth team? So I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, I came across you guys through your summit, The Obstetrical Dilemma. Now, that was really unique for me to listen to that. I shared with you before we started this chat that I've had my own journey of understanding the medical and maternity system. And I really wanted to share your take-home messages from this summit because I know for myself, when I started leaning into like physiological birth and like no interventions and how can I make this birth as hands-off as possible, that on the flip side of that coin, I started to feel a bit like, oh, obstetricians are interfering and obstetricians are they're on the other side that I need to be wary of them. And I knew that didn't feel right for me at the time, but it was the process I was working through it. And I had to go through that. And I've really landed in this beautiful space where I think there's room for every single birth worker, obstetricians, midwives, doulas, all of them. But I do think it is important, I think, to recognize the dilemmas that these obstetricians do face and the training that they go through. And how they're uniquely positioned to look at birth. And I don't think this is necessarily a, an understanding that a lot of people have. And I think that the summit you brought together was super fascinating to me. So I wanted to start with, A, what made you bring this summit together? So what made you think we need to get a whole bunch of OBs in the room to talk about the challenges they face and how they're moving towards trying to support more physiological birth? And then B, I want you to share the take-home messages that you got from these obstetricians sharing their stories and their approaches to birth. And yeah, let's start there. <laughs> I have to just say that Meredith, this was her brainchild. <laughs> she just, she had got the idea from, there is an actual conundrum called the obstetrical dilemma, but it doesn't refer to specifically the dilemmas OBs have in practice, but it refers instead to the problem of women's pelvises. Evolution caused them to be narrow once we started walking and, and they can't birth these large babies. Meredith is going to say this in a much more eloquent way than I will, but that's the basic thrust. And so that's where that phrase came from. But Meredith felt this drive to do this particular summit we actually, it wasn't great timing. We had a lot of other things going on. We have another summit coming up in June, but Meredith just felt so committed to this. So I just hung on for the ride. <laughs> oh, she's so great to have along on any ride. <laughs> she, I couldn't have done it without her. Couldn't do any of this without Alicia. But I think that we, I, I saw this connection between the obstetrical dilemma and the dilemmas that obstetricians are facing because there's just this inherent belief that women's bodies are likely to fail at any moment. And we had an interview with an anthropologist in the obstetrical dilemma, in the obstetrician's dilemma, where we actually address the obstetrical dilemma, which I won't get into here, but it's a flawed theory for a lot of reasons from a scientific perspective. But it has led to a culture of belief that humans just aren't very good at birth. And our pelvises aren't really ideally designed for it. Our babies are born too early and too big. <laughs> and so sometimes they get set. And this is the mindset that obstetricians around the world are often trained in. And we were aware of several obstetricians that had broken from the mold. 
And we wanted to dig up more. And in the end, we were able to, unfortunately, as we were marketing this event, more of them came out of the woodwork. And so we need to do a part two because there's more out there. Because one of the messages that we got, and I guess I'll just start with this takeaway, was that they feel lonely. That obstetricians who really do see the problems in maternity care and who actually favor physiologic births are really lonely. They are often, if they try to implement changes, often shunned by their colleagues or sometimes fired, sometimes sued. (laughs) It's a lonely place to be. And so it was cool to see that there's maybe more of them out there than they realize. Um, It was cool and hopeful for us to see, too, that maybe there's more out there than anyone realizes. But in the end, we had 11 that we brought to the panel. And we just wanted to give them a chance to share what they wish they had learned in medical school and or what they wish they hadn't learned. I think that was when we approached Dr. David Hayes. He said, actually, I think I'd rather talk about what I wish I hadn't learned. So there's some unlearning to do by these obstetricians. But yeah, that was the motive. We wanted to highlight some of the challenges that they face. Absolutely. We wanted to bring some humanity to them because like you said, a lot of people in our following in the natural birth world see obstetricians as as malicious even maybe or self-serving, not really caring about women and babies. And we knew we know that makes no sense. Right. We've been in the room with them. And yes, we've seen moments of coercion and moments where that person seemed really scared or clearly wasn't prioritizing the needs of mom and baby. But we wanted to get underneath that. Why is that, that this human in the room isn't, isn't addressing the needs of the woman in front of them? What is on their mind out in the hallway or up in administration that's making it hard for them to center the mother? And, and then what are the obstetricians doing who are getting past that and offering physiology-friendly care anyway? That's, and we wanted to highlight that as well. So that was what was behind it all. We also got the chance to examine our own bias because we have it. Absolutely. We've had some terrible experiences with obstetricians. We've also had some fantastic experiences with them. And I think to help us sort through and understand their minds and hearts, we had the chance to sit down with them. Not only that, but we also like rebels. We like people who aren't afraid to do things differently. And all of these OBs on this panel are, they're courageous. They are bold and they're authentic. And we really value all of those traits. I think that's really important what you said about acknowledging your own bias, because it's hard to go into a conversation open-minded if you've got your own stories around it. And like I said, that's something I had to work through myself is I went through the process of being like, like, wouldn't use that model of care and then I was like you know what this is actually say in Australia I'm not sure if it's the same in the US but there's a lot of evidence to show that continuity of care is the best approach to a woman's pregnancy and birth like having the same consistent care provider so there's a lot of push for midwifery group practice or midwifery care sorry where you get the same midwife and they follow you through your pregnancy and are at your birth rather than In the public system here, you get a different person every time checking on you. You don't know who you're going to have at your birth and that's how it works. And I guess I was thinking, we've got limited funding to allow women to have a midwife like that. So the other option is if someone can afford it, they can have a private obstetrician and that's one way to get continuity of care. 
And then that's where my brain goes, but if obstetricians have a certain lens on birth, does this mean that those women then are more likely to have interventions, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like if there's this push for obstetricians who are bucking the trend a little bit and honoring physiology first and being more hands-off, that that could be a really awesome option for those women who can afford to pay for a private obstetrician to get that continuity of care. As long as we have the the right obstetricians on board who are honoring what midwives do in that like physiology first. So I just think, yeah, that's where my mind's at is that this could be such a beautiful option for women who can afford it. But I guess it's about that push coming through the obstetric and the medical world as well. And then, like you said, I imagine there's so many barriers they come up against with the system and other colleagues and their training. And I'm really interested to hear what do they wish that they had known and what do they wish that they have to unlearn? I'm really curious to know about that. The number one takeaway was probably that they all wish they had learned about physiology and, and they don't learn about that for some good reasons. They're specialists and they're surgeons and they have a lot to learn about high-risk birth management, about high-risk pregnancy, about surgery. And, and so we're really happy <laughs> that they learn all of those things in such a detailed, specialized way. But because those are the people that they have to learn to care for and that they often are caring for in their residency, because they have to, as, as much as possible, get acquainted with all of these different potential complications during their medical training, they end up being biased themselves. More Dr. Julia McCallum in her interview said that residency rewired her brain, that she actually, going into, had more training and understanding from, mid, from the midwifery model. And then residency rewired her brain to see every birth as a potential disaster because she dealt with so many disasters. They, even if they are acquainted with physiology going in, it can be wiped out of them through this rigorous training program that, again, we're so glad that they do. The problem then is that these are the people going on to care for normal birth and that 90% of their patients should be expected to have pretty smooth births without any assistance. And they're not, and they're wired to be looking for these problems. So that was one of the big takeaways, I think, is that they all wish they had actually learned more about normal physiology, had actually seen an undisturbed birth. Uh, Alicia, what did David Hayes say he wished everyone had to do? I had to go to a home birth. That's what everybody should have to do because then you see birth as it really is. And he, what was so wonderful about him is he was open to that. So when a client asked if he would come to her birth, he said, why not? And I think that's the question that, that can be our takeaway. We can, when we're unfamiliar or uncomfortable, we can ask, why not? Why couldn't we try this? Why couldn't we do this thing? And that's what sets these obstetricians apart is they're not afraid to ask those questions. They're not afraid to buck the trends. So again, it takes courage to do what they've done. And I think when you've been trained, you're brought up in this system for so many years. You think about how many years, four years of medical school, then you go on to four years of residency. For some of those, they may go on to even specialize even more. So let's call it You've got eight to 10 years of training and birth not working. And that, is, that goes really deep. 
Those roots have sunk deep by the time a decade goes by. And something's got to stir your curiosity. Something's got to pique your interest in order to break free of that mold. And then that's not easy. And that's why I think the majority of the obstetricians that I've observed in my time as a doula have not broken free of that mold. And the ones who have, it has not been an easy road. They've had to sacrifice a lot. We were just talking, I was talking to an OB in the Pacific Northwest, and she told me that she was interested in doing, she's a very supportive of physiology, and she's interested in doing breech birth, vaginal breech birth at her hospital. So she brought it to the hospital board, and she was censured and put on notice just for trying to open up the possibility of vaginal breech birth for women. I think so many of them are, they're being silenced. And that's scary, right? You've got a family to provide for. So maybe it's better just to be quiet and stay small because then that way you protect what you've built and you protect your family and your finances and maybe even your dignity. So it, so it takes a very special person to be able to say, I'm not going to do it. It's not going to be an easy road. Not at all. And I know there's a lot of pressure from insurance and legalities and yeah, I, and I totally understand. And I'm actually getting Dr. Natalie Elfingstone on the podcast soon. And I'm really excited. She's wonderful. She's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And she was in your summit and I'm so excited to hear her take on it all and what she's doing. I know she's doing a lot of amazing things to center the woman and she talks a lot about taking yourself off this pedestal that often you're put on as a doctor because you are top dog. You are the expert. People come to you because they need to be fixed and you are the hero. You save them and that is your role. But in birth, it's different, right? Because birth is not inherently broken and wrong. And it's the one thing that doesn't really make sense in the medical system because it is physiological. But you can understand the point of view that they have because of their training and what they see. And I want to quote from one of your amazing emails as well, is that you said it's a catch-22 for birth providers because in order to understand physiologic birth, we have to witness it. And in order to witness it, we inevitably disrupt it. And I thought that was really powerful because you're like, wow, that's a real pickle to be in, isn't it? (laughs) Because you can see how tricky it is to truly be able to witness a physiological birth. But again, to just be in the room can be disruptive to that process in and of itself. And when you're trained to do something, and in a lot of the cases, I remember having this chat with Natalie, but when you're paid to do something, that can also be a really tricky position. There's a lot of jokes about, oh, my obstetrician didn't even make it to catch the baby. That's five grand well spent or whatever. Like (laughs) when you're paying someone, I think there's also this expectation from the patient that you will do something because that's often how the exchange works, right? So I I see the pickle from so many different avenues. I think it's something really worth exploring. And I remember on my rotations as a physiotherapist talking about bias, we would go into say the neuro ward and all we could think about was, oh my God, I have a headache. I'm going to have a brain aneurysm or I've got a tumor or everything then becomes what you're seeing. We'd go into the cardiac ward and we'd be like, oh, I've got chest pain. Oh no, like what's happening? And it's, I, we would joke about it, but you can see how if I worked in, say, the neuro ward for my entire life, like 
I would have a story around what a headache might mean. Whereas if you don't work in that area, you don't have a story around it. So I guess it's acknowledging these stories and these biases from what we see. That's the lens that we're looking at things through. And I guess it's important to recognize if you want a physiologic birth, you need to be able to step back and go, has my care provider seen physiological birth before? And can they understand it and trust it and all of that if they haven't witnessed it before? So I think that's really important to note. Now, I know we need to wrap up in a second, but I'd just love to quickly touch on what do you see these obstetricians doing to create change? What's the theme of what they're trying to do to bring about change in the obstetric world? I think they're all doing it in different ways. Yeah, we got we had such a interesting mix of people there. Some of them left the system to change it. They they decided I can't change it from inside. I'm going to go build a new system, and I'm going to. Dr. Nathan Riley, for instance, left the system and instead is supporting midwives. So he's a he offers consults to midwives through his collaborator program. Or Dr. Stu Fishbein left the system after, after what twenty eight years, Alicia, something twenty years, a lot of years. Yes. <laughs> and he offers, and he and Dr. David Hayes in their own sides of the country offer breach trainings and they both travel all over to train people in vaginal breach birth. Dr. Natalie Elphinstone is working inside the system. She has managed to create protocols in her hospital that have made it possible for women to participate in their own cesarean birth by reaching down and helping to pull the baby out. Dr. Julia McCallum is working within her own, is working within the system. She actually oversees, she's a professor and she oversees residents and medical students on the floor. And so she's making change by saying, hey, no one can break anyone's water without first talking to me about it. Because it was routine before she made that rule. We just break everybody's water. That one change alone has been really influential in reducing her cesarean rate by, I feel it was like, 18 percent. It's like a really big change in just these little steps that she took to change the way things happen on her floor. Dr. David Hayes does home birth now. You know, that first woman who asked him to her home birth and started a whole new era of his life where he realized, wow, this is what birth is. Now I get it. And so he supports home birth. I'm sure I could think of Emiliano Shavira is maternal fetal medicine specialist. So he's a high-risk OB working inside the system, but working closely with midwives and learning from midwives and supporting midwives. I think that actually was an interesting theme among these doctors is that those who have made these changes have learned from midwives and work closely with midwives because midwives are the keepers of physiologic birth. They're the ones who specialize in that. So if you're going to be an OB working with women giving birth in, in a normal way, then you need to learn from the experts in physiology, which I think would blow some OB's minds. Like, wait, I need to learn from the midwives? Because <laughs> they see it as the hierarchy is ingrained into them in medical yeah. school. And they inherently are going to be putting midwives lower on the hierarchy, but they're actually just a completely different specialty. Sure. Alicia, I don't know if you have anything to add about what they're doing to make change. Well, I think what they're doing is the same thing that moms and dads get to do. In their birth, and that is listening to their intuition and become stepping into their leadership in their own lives and saying, What is it that I really want to do? What feels aligned and right to me? And I think that's what these OBs are doing. And sometimes standing in their leadership might mean staying in the system, 
Sometimes it may lead them out of the system. And I think that's exactly the same for parents. When they stand in their leadership and say, I am valuable and my desires and wishes are important, then that allows them to make decisions that are truly aligned and to lead themselves wherever they need to be led, whether that's in the hospital or out to give birth. Mm. It always comes back to that, right? Going inwards and trusting your own wisdom and your own intuition and that's my philosophy is like you do you so you look I can give you support and education but at the end of the day you need to look within and know whatever the right choice for you is go with that I think that's so important I could chat to you guys for hours but I'm so appreciative of your time I think your unique angle on these topics I love it like I think it's not something I've really heard about before I think you're bringing like some really beautiful light to these discussions. Like you said, a lot of these obstetricians feel lonely. They feel isolated. And I think you you have both just brought some really beautiful warmth and energy and perspective to something that I guess people don't really talk about very much, but I think it's going to really help action change moving forward. So I thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. It is It's really special. Keep sending those epic emails because I love reading them. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me, Meredith and Alicia. Thank you. Hey, mamas. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I feel like this is a topic we've kind of discussed on the podcast, but not specifically like this today. So I think they're really interesting points to think about because so often we don't actually understand what physiological birth means. Is it natural birth? Is it vaginal birth? Is it birth without drugs? What does physiological birth actually mean? I know with my first birth, I'd never really heard that term. I didn't really understand what it meant. But now that I understand it, it's really, really important that we protect it, that we honor it, that we respect it, and that we get our care providers and our support teams on board to honor physiology first. Because in many cases, like we discuss in this podcast, there will be interventions that are necessary, but that's okay if we still understand physiology and we can protect it as much as possible. I also find the obstetrical dilemma part of this interview really, really fascinating. And like I said in the introduction, I will be following this up with an obstetrician who is making waves in the maternity system, who is trying to focus on woman-centered care and undisturbed birth. And I think it's a really fascinating area for discussion right now. So stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. I'm so excited to be back in your ears after a bit of hiatus, bringing all these amazing interviews to you. If you want to connect with Alicia and Meredith, please find them at intentional.birth. And as always, come and share some love. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you feedback you have, what questions you have over at PhysioLaura. I would so love to hear from you. But otherwise, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're having a wonderful week and I'll be back in your ears next week, mamas. Bye. Bye.